you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagods.com and Manuel Betancourt, film critic uh, and contributing editor at Film Quarterly. We begin with Expendables 4, The Gang is Back, led by Jason Statham. Sylvester Stallone is there, Curtis 50 Cent Jackson, Megan Fox, Scott Waterecting, directing, and the three credited screenwriters, Kurt Wimmer, Ted Daggerhart, and Max Adams. Tim, Expendables 4. Well, this is this, well, look, this is a lot of fun as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Expendables 4, not, it's the third best in the four Expendable films. Not as good as one and two, better than three. So if, you, if, you know, if you're okay. here for three, check out this and one. And still anyway. entertaining. And still very, very entertaining. As these films are, I have a few thoughts about that too. This one takes place on a, on a tanker. Uh, some nuclear, some nukes are on a tanker, and they gotta, they gotta stop these bad guys, these villains, including Eco Rice, uh, who are gonna set off these nukes and start World War III. Well, this is a really, really, really weak plot. I can think of five, six ways to stop this all by myself. <laughs> you do have a military background. <laughs> I got a couple of buddies. I'm thinking we could swear this away, but nevertheless, it is what we're gonna do in this movie, and it's just fine, mostly because of of, of the newcomers. We have uh, Eco Rice, who is from the Raid movies, the Raid Redemption movies, and of course we got Tony Ja. I think Tony Jock is, Jock is out of the Ang Bak movies uh, over there. And this wonderful actress named Levi Tran. Levi uh, is from the house on Haunted Hill, but she also pops up in like Magnum P.I., the new Magnum mm-hmm. P.I. and the new MacGyver, those shows. And she's just wonderful in those shows. And I, I see her here in this film playing a character called Lash, which is just a wicked name mm-hmm. for a character. And she's and she's fantastic in this movie, lives up to her name uh, as we work our way through this thing. This, 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 this movie interestingly enough, sort of works its way out kind of like a game a little bit. Scott Waugh made his bones with Active Valor. That movie didn't that used actual Navy SEALs yeah. as playing mm-hmm. the heroes in the movie to do this whole thing, based, loosely based on a true story. It wasn't a very good movie. But he's knocked out that and Hidden Strike, which is uh, Jackie Chan and John Cena, very popular on one of the streaming services. This is what he does, and it has a sort of game-like quality that he brings to these these movies that I appreciate greatly. They, they call this film, uh, what do they call it, a Poor man's Fast and Furious. I think of it as an old man's Fast and Furious. <laughs> uh, all of these guys get a little long and they do Stallone and John. You can see that Sylvester is intending to hand this off to uh, Jason Statham's character. He kind of lets him lead the mission out on this one. He says a few of those lines that he says the way he says them, and, you know, and he body slams a couple of guys. It's funny to see these young um, uh, martial arts guys doing all of this amazing stuff in this movie, and Sylvester just throws a right cross. <laughs> and pretty much goes takes old school. He goes old school. It. I'm not doing all that. And, and that's what he's doing in this movie as we move our way through it. It is fun. It moves fast. The opening action sequence is really what it has to offer uh, for that opening action. Good stunts. It's just, it's, just, it's just really, really excellent. Now, I do have some thoughts about the way this... I'm looking at this movie, the Red Band trailer in particular, which is really, really good, because they talk about how this movie is unequivocally and absolutely rated R, and they use a lot of blood. 
the blood is like candy apple red. It's like the color of a Corvette from 1967. This has got possibly be blood, but it's all over this movie. So they take it up a notch like that. I'll tell you another thing they do in this movie. I'm looking at this movie, and everybody looks great. Everybody looks a little too great. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. They're de-aging everybody in this really? movie. All the time. Not just like uh, the Irishman or something like that, where we're going to do a scene from 15, 20 years ago. No, 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 no. They're just knocking 10 years off everybody pretty much across the board in this movie. And they look fantastic, but I think it's an interesting thing for us to think about. Uh, if they're going to be doing that forever, yeah. Sylvester, if, <laughs> if he can throw that right cross, <laughs> he's, good for, he's good to go for the next one. Maybe this is coming to the real world, not just films. Expendables 4, starring Jason Statham and Sylvester Stallone, it's rated R in white release. The thriller It Lives Inside uh, gives us character Sam, desperate to fit in at school, rejecting her Indian culture and family to fit in and to assimilate. But a mythological demonic spirit latches onto her former best friend, and her heritage becomes a central part of the plot. Megan Surrey stars. The film is written and directed by Bishal Dutta. Uh, Manuel, what do you think of It Lives Inside? I think this is a very fun fun ride. It is. We're, we're getting into horror season, October season, spooky season. And if you're a fan of jump scares and uh, demons lurking in hallways that may come and strangle you or gnash you or kill you or otherwise strangle you and sort of leave you for dead, this is a, this is a great uh, movie for you. Um, it is very much uh, grounded and rooted in East Indian and Hindu mythology, which is a very nice twist because it gives us a little bit the sort of flesh-eating demon that has taken over this uh, Sam, Sam's best friend. Uh, she needs to sort of learn about it and sort of reconnect with her mother and who she's always saying like, oh, mom, I don't want to help you with this and I don't want to eat that food and I want to, I just want to hang out with like the cool kids, cool white kids. Um, and so it's very uh, culturally specific and I think that's the one thing that it has going for. It also has a fantastic, uh, thrilling sequence set in a high school uh, where a light timer becomes sort of the way that you can fend off the demon. But of course, the timer keeps uh, timing out. <laughs> uh, I will say, I, toward the end, it started losing me a little bit because it, it it does sort of build its kind of tension and the sort of this lurking menace of this demon that we, at the beginning, we don't really see. And it's unclear whether it's because it's invisible or because only some people can see it or because it has no corporeal sense or because it's inside you. And it, 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 the more the movie goes along, it's sort of hard to figure out what the actual rules of this demon are and how you can kill it or see it or attack it. Um, but as a directorial debut, I think this is very promising and I'm very excited to see what this director is going to do next. The writer-director is Bishal Dada. The film is It Lives Inside, starring Megan Surrey and Niru Bajwa. It's rated PG-13 in English and Hindi. It was the Audience Award winner at the South by Southwest Film Festival. It Lives Inside is in wide release. The Origin of Evil is a French uh, thriller that stars Laura Calamy and is written and directed by Sebastien Marnier. Tim, what do you think of The Origin of Evil? I, 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 like, the, I like this film quite a lot. I like the way it's shaped. Uh, I see comparisons out there to Succession. You have, and it's funny, we were talking about Rupert Murdoch this yeah. morning, stepping down from the top of the family and all that kind of stuff. We, we have this patriarch, this old guy, the head of this company and this family. He has his, his wife, his older daughter, who wants to take over the 
company and is kind of running it even now as he is as she is you know is getting long in the tooth and a granddaughter and this young woman throws up Laura's character she says oh I'm I'm his illegitimate daughter uh, what's funny about this movie is when she pops up everybody's like yeah probably <laughs> he's, he, certainly certainly he's probably got a few running around so nobody's really you know uh, yeah, yeah 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 okay whatever so she's there in this family sort of insinuating herself and we watch this movie play out. And it becomes a much, much darker film than Succession is a television show. Um, and I love the way it's constructed. So when the film begins, the, 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 uh, the audience, we watching the film, um, we are ahead of all of the characters in the film. We know stuff uh, that's going on that they don't know what's going on. And as we get about halfway through this film, they've caught up with us. As we get to the end of this film, we have no idea what the hell is going on. The characters in the film don't know what's going on. And when this film cuts to black, you will have found out some entirely new information. But you're going to be okay with that. You're going to be okay with that. We're talking about The Origin of Evil, the thriller from France in select theaters, written and directed by Sébastien Marnier. It's rated R in French with English subtitles. Flora and Son is from writer-director John Carney of Once Fame, Eve Hewson, and Oren Kindlin are the stars of the movie, uh, which uh, involves music, as Carney's films often do. Manuel? This is... Utterly charming, almost bordering on cloying film. Flora and son, so we have a mother and, and son, and if he's in place, Flora, who's trying to get her uh, very rebellious teenage son out of trouble, out of the police, out of juvie, and she thinks that music, which is what his father does and her ex-husband does, uh, is the way to do it. So they end up, over the course of the movie, um, creating music together. Um, she begins taking classes from Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character via Zoom because he lives in L.A. and they're in Dublin. Uh, it It's all, yeah, charming and cloying and very, very sweet and kind of frictionless given the setting. We're supposed to be in sort of a not particularly great part of Dublin. Mm. And he's supposed to be sort of almost at the edge of going to prison. Uh, but they're also nice and so well-rounded, like rounded in the sense of like they've been sanded down after, like any kind of friction, uh, which is a, a shame because he... Hewson is fantastic, and I think she's very captivating as Flora. Um, but if you do love a John Carney film, the, he all the hits, building music together, having a fabulous uh, live jam session, uh, it, it's all here as it was in Begin Again, as it was in Sing Street, and as it was in Once. Mm. Flora and Son, Tim. Yeah, exactly. It's a messy, messy movie. And, and, and really, I shouldn't like it as much as I do, but I do. <laughs> uh, because I, it, it, he, John does what he does, but he does do it well. Um, Flora here is um, uh, she had she had uh, her son when she was seventeen, just uh, six. She got pregnant, so she's only a little bit older than him. Uh, and um, she still loves clubbing and club music and dancing all night. And she just can't quite pull herself into into being an adult, but she knows she has to. This clever thing that they do with Joseph Gordon Levitt, who's in L.A. and they're on Zoom. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you remember Hunt for Red October. They did this thing in Hunt for Red October. They're speaking Russian at the beginning of that film. And there's a moment uh, when Sean Connery walks past a post, and when he comes out the other side of that post, he's speaking English. And they speak English for the rest of that movie. They do this. They do that in this movie. We're watching her talk to him on this computer, and they just do a little wipe, and he's sitting on the other side of the kitchen table from her. He's still in. Yeah. But there he is in the room and in the park. 
and they figure out a little way to do it, and you buy it. You know that they're messing with you, but you're like, you know, okay, go ahead and mess with me, and you just go along with it, and you get to the end of this movie, and you have that little concert that John puts in all I of know. his films, and I teared up and had a good old time. We're talking about Flora and Son from writer-director John Carney, Eve Hewson, or Oren Kindlin, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt star. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles at the New Art Theater in West L.A. And starting next week, it'll be streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Flora and Son is rated R. The documentary Invisible Beauty looks at uh, fashion icon Beth Ann Hardison and looks at her as a pioneering black model, a modeling agent, and an activist. The film is directed by Frederick Cheng and Beth Ann Hardison herself. Tim, what did you think? And Beth Ann Hardison. Uh, you have the full disclosure, I know Beth Ann. I hosted a panel uh, for this show, uh, for this documentary a few, a few months ago uh, at which she was at. And uh, But I love this film anyway. I love the way this film is constructed, uh, directed by Beth Ann and Frederick. Because, you know, if you know Beth Ann, nobody's directing Beth Ann to do nothing. But Beth Ann is the director of all things related so to Beth Ann. So she's controlling oh, the yeah. whole presentation. At, at the beginning of this film, she's talking with Frederick on the phone about how to start the film. And Frederick says, well, we should start it with you. Now, as we're watching this, we're watching her. And she's getting dressed and she is getting fly. She's putting on this black and white checker thing that's just so ridiculous. It's just wonderful. And we, talk, we listen to them talking about starting the film by starting it with her. But then Beth Ann says, but what we have to do is we have to weave the pearls in. Uh, because I, I just wear the necklace. I am not the necklace. So she's completely aware that it's not just her. It's all that she's done and seen. Beth Ann was a part of the, the uh, Versailles 73 uh, uh, um, um, uh, French uh, exhibition, um, which all these black models came from the United States. And there's a wonderful documentary about that from about 2012 or so, oh. Versailles 73, I think it's called. Uh, and Beth Ann was part of that. So when you look at all of those pictures or that doc, you're going to see Beth Ann all over that. When I was a little boy, uh, my big sister introduced me to all of these women. Vogue magazine. And I she remember said, you telling me oh, that, yeah. that the world of fashion all she of opened that. up she, for she, you. She opened yeah. up for me. And Beth Ann, then, years later, uh, in the early 90s, uh, my wife was a model here. Beth Ann was her agent. Uh, Beth Ann wow. gave us Tyson Beckford. She gave us most of the very important um, black models uh, that we came to know during that supermodel period. But the yeah. wonderful thing about Beth Ann's modeling agency is that it was not a a black modeling agency. It was a modeling agency run by a black woman uh, that understood and featured black folks, but everybody worked at Beth Ann's modeling agency. We're talking about the documentary Invisible Beauty, focusing on Beth Ann Hardison. Manuel, you want to give us about 30 seconds of it, and if there's more, we'll come back and continue. Yeah, I, this is a fabulous talk, and it, all credit goes to Beth Ann, because she is a fascinating figure, um, and there's also, you know, the She's had like various different careers. So after she was uh, an agent, she then, in the early 2000s, then led the sort of fight to get more diverse representation in modeling. And there's a specific scene in 2007 at a press conference with Naomi Campbell, Iman, that is just breathtaking. And the, the doc really gives you a lot of room to really bask in her and her career. We're talking about Invisible Beauty. The film is unrated. The documentary is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. It's Film Week on LA, a 89.3. Many more movies to come in just one minute.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on L.A. Estates 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Manuel Betancourt and Tim Cogshell. Next up, No One Will Save You, a horror thriller. Caitlin Deaver stars in the film. Brian Duffield is the writer-director of the Hulu streaming movie. Manuel, what did you think of No One Will Save You? This is great. And I was so surprised because the logline, which is this young woman who lives in sort of this remote house and is a little isolated from her community, wakes up one night and hears crazy sounds and then realizes there's an alien in her house. So now she has to fight them. Uh, feels really trite and true. And we've seen this and it's a home invasion film, but it's an alien and the alien looks exactly how you imagine it. It's like they're tall, lanky, gray, big head, black eyes. Um, but it is so well done and is so taut and tight there's, I think, two lines of dialogue in the entire film. So all of it, it's not silent, but she's never talking. She's like panting and grunting and sighing and uh, just trying to, uh, at the best of her ability, like really survive and finding everything that she can. She like at one point boils water so she can have kind of weapon to fight and fend off this alien. And then you soon realize there's like a bigger thing happening. And there's also uh, something in their past which is going to inform the way that she's fighting and why she's sort of struggling with a community that becomes, uh, as soon as the movie twists into that and sort of leans more into sort of a, a more psychological portrait of this character, uh, it's fantastic. Also, Dever remains utterly transfixing whenever she's on screen. Like, I've loved her ever since I saw her in Short Tone 12 and in everything she's done, she manages to be so convincing and raw and authentic. And this is, you're with her the entire film and she she really sells it. No One Will Save You, the horror film is rated PG-13 and it's streaming on Hulu. 26.2 to Life is a documentary about the San Quentin Prison Marathon. Christine Yu makes her feature documentary debut directing the movie. Tim. Very, very, very impressed by this very simple film, which takes place all at San Quentin, just about all at San Quentin. The 26.2 miles they run is this marathon, and they, where they run it around that block. They run it around that yard again and again and again and again. It's a pretty big, pretty big yard. It's a pretty big yard. But, you know, that's a, that's a, that's an and so what we watch is is this central race. And as we're watching it, we talk to these guys that are running it, these prisoners. What I like about this film is that every one of these guys is going to tell you exactly who they are. They're going to tell you what they did. And that they're not going to, they're, they're not going to, you know, mitts around with the language of it. I killed somebody. 
this is this is what happened. This is how it happened. And, and I'm guilty. And I am exactly in the right place. Now, I'm going to build a life from here, and this is one way I'm going to do it. And we, we, and we talk with the, oh, I forget who the runner is, the, uh, who, who brings this program into the prison system. And we see all of these guys, and we work our way in and out. And as we come back, we see how far they've gotten in that marathon. Uh, you know, you know f- five miles, 10 miles, 15 miles. And we go tell another story. We come back, and we see where that guy is in the marathon. It's being framing. It's a it. wonderful, very, very bright framing. And this, this film isn't asking you to do anything. Thing except just see these people who, uh, who understand, they understand what they've done, they've accepted it, we can envision them in some other way than as just horrible monsters. There are four or five cats in this film who I like, and I promise you, they would be real good friends of mine. And and this is part of a running club that San Quentin has, is that right? So it's not just the marathon, but yeah, training. They, and... they, they, they train, and they start with the 5K, and they sort of work their way up to this big marathon. And it has uh, moved its way out of San Quentin. There are a few other prison systems that are doing it, too. And, it's, and, I, and, I, and I love the nature. I wish I could remember the name of the fellow who brings the program there. He's a runner, a lifelong runner, a very famous fellow. I love him in this film. Uh, he doesn't preach. He's not didactic. He just says, let's run. 26.2 to life is the documentary, Manuel. I, I think Tim liked a little bit more th- th- than I did. I think this is, uh, you know, I, the title gives it away in the sense that this is both a prison doc and a sports doc, and it has sort of tried and true trips from both, which is like, this is going to be heartwarming and inspiring and uplifting. Yes, this is going to give us, uh, you know, probing critiques of our carceral system that doesn't really offer any kind of rehabilitation possibilities. Yes, it does that. Does it have amazing personalities that are going to drive us through? It does. Uh, I found actually the, the structure I loved, but I think visually it keeps the, and this is sort of par for the course given what you have to work with, like it all ends up looking the same, right? Because you're, whenever you can't leave the yard and you can't, you're constantly going back and it's the same thing. So it's a little hard to feel like you're moving forward when you're not. Visually. And the men can't leave San Quentin to show like, other aspects of their life before prison. Yeah, and we meet a couple of like their their wives and their families, and you know I won't give it away, but we do end up with this very like sort of crowning achievement moment for one of them uh, at the end of the film that does make you sort of uh, it's very heartwarming. And so in that sense, I don't don't knock it. But for me, um, aesthetically and stylistically, I, I feel like it was a little wanting. Twenty six point two to life. The documentary is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. It's unrated. Christine Yu is the director. The music documentary Carlos uh, follows Carlos Santana's life from street musician as a teenager in the Bay Area to 10-time Grammy-winning global artist Rudy Valdez is the director of the documentary Manuel. How can you not enjoy a documentary about Carlos Santana? It's very hard not to. And this one is perfectly serviceable. Uh, This is an hour and a half, which is an impossible task to really capture what has made this decades-long career possible. Uh, And I think if I have any critique of the film is that I just wanted more. Because, you know, knowing where Carlos Santana was coming from, you know, as a Mexican kid who learned the guitar because he was inspired by his dad who, you know, played the violin through, you know, playing Woodstock and getting involved in the jazz movement and really pushing Latin fusion music further and further, especially in 1999 with Supernatural and then continuing with all these collaborations he's done over the years. It's hard to do that. 
And it's hard to do that in, in such a short time, which means a lot of things get shortchanged. A lot of decades get sort of skimmed over. But when it focuses on Carlos speaking, and if you've heard Carlos speak, you know that he has sort of this very waxing philosophical, psychedelic sort of way of talking. And sort of you want you want more of that. And you want more of um, home videos that he has and performances that he has. So if anything, it just makes made me want to want more. Um, so it's not quite a knock on the film, but uh, and maybe I'm going to sound like broken record, but like when you have someone as uh, larger than life that's Santana, I kind of wanted the, the doc to sort of match him. And maybe that's just an impossible task. I would love to see a documentary on the Bay Area music scene of like late 60s through mid 80s. Because Sly and the in, Stone. Oh, I mean, the number of Jefferson Airplane, uh-huh. Steve Miller band. The, I mean, the list goes on and on Huey Lewis and the news. There's so many that um, that came. Credence Clearwater uh, with John Fogarty. It would be great to have a documentary. And that kind of gets into what were the factors going on in that post-war mm. period that really led to this fertile ground in the Bay Area mm. for all these. And they're pretty diverse musically how they came out of it. Because as you say with Carlos Santana, um, he reinvented himself and had all these different musical influences that he beautifully incorporated into his playing. What I love about the nature of all those bands from that era, all those bands were multiracial. Mm. Uh, when you, all those, the ones you just mentioned, when you look at they were all when you looked at the same thing happening across, not you know all those funk bands when well, they were black bands, <laughs> but those bands coming out of the, coming out of yeah. all multiracial. Well, bands. Um, you know, when you're talking Sly and the Family Stone, that's what <laughs> Sly Stone. I mean, Carlos is the music documentary. It's rated. Our Rudy Valdez is the director, and it's in select theaters this Sunday, the 23rd, uh, for you to see that documentary. And speaking of music documentaries, we go back to 1984, Jonathan Deme's documentation of three nights of Pantages Theater performances of Talking Heads. Stop Making Sense is the documentary, and it's been uh, fully restored 4K. They've also put out a restoration of the soundtrack of it as well for the 40th anniversary of the film, Tim. Yeah, absolutely breathtaking. The 4K because uh, so 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 19. I know, Lord, did you make the show? Were you at the show? No, <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I, but, I wasn't quite here. Yeah, I didn't get here to 1990, yeah. so I didn't make that no, show. Saw the film, not the show. Uh, yeah. in, in that film, which of course is is iconic. So the Pantages is more or less a black box, right? Particularly in this film, uh, and that blackness rendered in 4K is deep. It is very, very deep. Every now and again, you have these big um, sort of primary color moments, big red, and of course. You have uh, uh, David in that o- that oversized gray suit, sort of jumping and bouncing around with all the people. But that's what that's what this movie is: is high key lighting, and then of course those songs from that period, which have become a part of the American pop rock songbook. They are. You have to watch this along with um, American Utopia. Uh, the 20-whatever-it-was, 2020-2021, something like that, documentary uh, that picks up where this film leaves off. I, I, I think you have to watch them together. But in 4K, uh, I tell you what, bring the lights down in your room, and it's like a performance. I promise you it is. I was listening to the soundtrack, the, the what was released in 84, and this was just on Spotify. And then compared to the remastered, and even you know with Spotify's compression, the difference was was very impressive mm. on the soundtrack. Stop Making Sense 4K restoration for its 40th anniversary. It's unrated in selected thea- select theaters. Jonathan Demme, of course, uh, the director. Mm. 
The documentary Radical Wolf uh, tells the story of Tom Wolf, uh, one of the leaders of new journalism movement. He's been a guest with us on our Air Talk program a couple of times, uh, and uh, this has a number of, of famous writers commenting on Wolf's influence. Manuel, what did you think? I am not the <laughs> target audience for this. Uh, I'm a lapsed literary academic, and I studied 20th century <laughs> literature, and Tom Wolfe has always been this like blind spot because I just there's something about his his writing and his demeanor that just has never appealed to me. But he's clearly so well-loved, and he's such a well-rounded personality that, of course, it makes sense that the documentary, and in this case, I feel, you know, I was talking about the Santana doc, like here, there is a sense of like really capturing that personality and really making it sing. And there's a lot of like, uh, there's narration by John Hamm of some of his most famous uh, works. And there's a lot of work with the kind of uh, magazine spreads that he used to do and a lot of cartoons that have been made of him. And of course, you know, if you know anything about Tom Wolfe, you know that white suit and the hat and he was sort of this like Which New York I City dandy. Which I always saw him in that white suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And he was sort of this larger than life character and he was clearly playing this role. And I think the documentary does a good job of laying that out. I don't know that if it ever gets past the that persona or past that performance. Um there's a way in which, you know, the, these talking heads, in my mind, a little bit were a little bit too hagiographic. If, if someone can explain to me why Peter Thiel was uh, a, a talking head in a Tom Wolfe documentary, I'm more than happy to hear. But it, it seemed uh, that to me, you, we never really skimmed past the surface, although you do get such an exhaustive uh, sort of understanding of his career and why he was such a such a fulcrum of 20th century writing. What's funny, what's kind of meta about this is apparently the documentary is based on a Michael Lewis article. And he's all over, he's all over (laughs) the, he's all over the doc. doc. Because of course, uh, Wolf's articles ended up being adapted as well. You know, he was not just a novelist, but uh, wrote so many uh, hugely influential articles, including the right stuff. Radical Wolf, the documentary, Tim. Yeah, and he was a success right off the bat. Very first piece that he wrote came out here to write about uh, racing and it was a big old hit and, and uh, the, how he came to write that uh, article in that way, this thing that came to be known as new journalism, which is a little bit ridiculous. Mark Twain and Stephen Crane were writing that way 100 years before Tom Wolfe, but okay, we won't go over there. Um, uh, it, but, and, and this thing came, him and Hunter F. and Joan Didion and all that kind of stuff. We had, you know, that was all sort of interesting. To be honest, all that was happening in the 70s, which was before uh, I was paying any attention uh, to a lot of that stuff. Get toward the late 70s and 80s, and we get up around Bonfire of the Vanities, and I start paying attention to Tom Wolfe. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, my first Tom Wolfe novel uh, is his first, his first novel, Bonfire of the Vanities. And you read this book, and they made the movie in 1985 with, <laughs> with Tom Hanks. And, 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 and I come to this book, and what I see is a book uh, written by a guy who apparently doesn't know that there are any black people on the planet until he does. <laughs> and when he does, they become these caricatures in the context of this book and eventually the movie. They're props. Uh, and, and, and he's using them as props to expose the way the Upper East Side white folks thought of black people. So they're meant to take down the white folks. But if you're black and you're reading this, they're still just props. If you're black and you're watching that movie, they're just props. And for a guy born in 1930 who went to Washington and Lee, a very fancy liberal arts university down in Virginia, uh, and Yale, PhD from Yale, Tom, um, I don't know. I, when, I, when I did go back and read all that new journalism, all that Tom Wolfe, I ain't seen any black people uh, until well, I saw black people. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, there you go. Anyway, so that's, that's where I came from. And this, this film didn't seem to know that. 
We're talking about Radical Wolf documentary about writer Tom Wolf. It's directed by Richard Dewey. It's unrated. It's at Lemley's, uh, several of their theaters, including the Royal, the Glendale, and the Claremont. Uh, Tim, uh, we also have a German fantasy drama, Piaf, but only about 30 seconds for you. Is this one you recommend or not? I will recommend it as a fantasy that has that touches on some interesting topics around transformations, about this introverted girl who becomes a Foley artist. Uh, and uh, how she transforms herself and more or less becomes a horse. All right. It's a movement performed in advanced dressage and classical writing, as you're describing. It's in German and English. Piaf is at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. We have more coming up on Film Week. We'll take a look at Otto Preminger versus Hollywood censors, a fascinating part of film history when we're back in just 90 seconds. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.